I hit all the buttons. Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor. I am co-hosting and filling in for Dave Robson. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. In studio with me is Pastor Sean Richards. Hi, how are you, Sean? Awaiting the name that usually gets mentioned <clears throat> first. <laughs> the big guy. There we are. <laughs> but uh, it's a pleasure to have you all here today. Uh, we are a weekday Bible call-in, or I should say Bible answer program. People don't generally call, uh, but you can follow along with us on multiple uh, social media platforms, such as Facebook. You can uh, join us at facebook.com slash at CCF Tucson. And uh, as you do so, you can just simply join the live stream and leave a comment in the comment section as a question, and we'll be happy to address it. So if you have a question pertaining to the Christian worldview or a particular passage of the Bible, our whole goal here in doing this program is to be an open uh, source for you to ask questions about faith and specifically the Christian faith. So we'd encourage you to join us there. We also live stream to YouTube. And if you happen to be joining us on some of these social media platforms, we'd encourage you and really would appreciate it if you would like, subscribe, hit that notification bell if you're on Facebook, like our page, share it on your feed if you don't mind. And our YouTube handle is at a reason for hope 546. If you want to catch us on a different platform, we are not yet live streaming to Rumble, but um, <clears throat> we are archiving this program on Rumble. So if you want to watch a program after the fact, uh, you can go back there. We have all our programs sort of categorized by the three top questions of that particular program. So it's easy to go through and maybe a question you have has already been answered. So feel free to go there. And of course, follow us if you do. That way we can grow our Rumble audience as well. If you don't want to be on social media and don't want your name broadcast on Facebook or YouTube as to the kinds of questions you want to know, well, feel free to go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and go to our Watch Live tab, and you can watch the live stream there. There's a comment box where you can ask your questions there. And, of course, there's a nifty little prayer button. So if there's something that um, <clears throat> particularly would like prayer for, uh, feel free to ask, and we would be just delighted to... Uh, seek the Lord on your behalf. We have a app that you can download that is all about Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, Arizona, where we have our fellowship and where we live stream this program from, as well as all our services. And if you're interested in just kind of keeping tabs on who we are and what we do and how we teach, uh, you can download that app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. We also have a channel on all the Amazon Fire products and Roku. So if you want to catch our services and listen to our archived teachings from all our uh, teachers, especially our senior pastor, Scott Richards, you may do so <clears throat> by adding that to those platforms. And if you want to, lastly, just ask a question sort of discreetly, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questions for hope at gmail.com. No numbers, all spelled out with letters. I uh, would encourage you also to follow our senior pastor on the Twitter webs. <laughs> That's twitter.com. And you can follow Pastor Scott at scottr4h. That's at Scott R, the number four, the letter H. We'd encourage you to do that. And of course, now in studio with us is Pastor Scott. Hey, thanks for joining <laughs> glad, us. <laughs> glad to make it. <laughs> Better late than never. Well, it's a busy week, and uh, I know that uh, the days you're in the office, it's 
pretty full, so thank you for carving out this much time every day for the last 20 some years. <laughs> <laughs> well, some days uh, you're more up to your ankles and alligators than others. So had to that, deal with some stuff, but here we are. Awesome. Yeah, ready to, ready to rip. Well, I, I threw out an idea for something we could start off with, but before we do that, um, uh, Pastor Scott, uh, or maybe Sean, since you're less distracted for the moment, would you care to uh, just lead us in prayer f- before we start? That would be okay. awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Thank you that we have the chance to be here, to be in your word and among your people. We ask most importantly that we'd be in your spirit and allow that common source not only of truth, but also of a heart for you to be at work here today. Give us the opportunity to not only understand your word, but to recognize your voice, become more acquainted with it, and fall in love with it so that we are all the more eager to share it where and when we have the opportunity. Bless this program and make it a blessing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is true. Well, all right. So what was the, uh, or yeah, I have to phrase this in the form of a question. What is the topic? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I came across today a Jeopardy question. Yes. And I, I'm sure you probably already heard about it. Well, uh, full disclosure, I have been a contestant on game shows twice in my life. Oh, wow. Well, that's twice as much as any of us in <laughs> yes, the room. Yes, <laughs> so I, I, do, I, I do have a, a bit of expertise to lend to the subject. Well, on Jeopardy, and, and the reason I brought this up is that I thought maybe we could start today by you maybe commenting on the state of biblical illiteracy in our culture, especially being that our country was sort of founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic and worldview and how much has changed in the last even hundred years. Not even our country, the education system was (laughs) founded on seminaries. Yeah. And on this particular game show, it's called Jeopardy. Right. And it's considered the cream of the crop of intellectuals, the, some of the brainiest people you don't want to be on Jeopardy unless as you far really as know. An, as far <laughs> as understanding trivia is concerned. I wouldn't yes. say. I mean, there, there, there's a narrow realm of expertise. If you're a veritable fount of useless information, <laughs> Jeopardy is for you. <laughs> there was a, a funny movie, White Men Can't Jump, yeah. where uh, a character in the movie was their dream was to be on Jeopardy, and one of the things that they trained for was to memorize every word that started with the letter Q. And it was kind of like this joke, like, this is useless. You'll never even use this information, especially on Jeopardy. Well, the character gets on the show, and one of the main categories was words that start with, with Q. Q. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And of course, she wins. Yeah. Lots of money. Yeah. But uh, yeah. here's the question. I'll put it up on the screen for the moment. And uh, uh, you tell me what you think the answers were. <laughs> yeah. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father, which art in heaven, this... this be, be your I name. name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think some of the answers were? I, I boy, I don't. I didn't read the article, so I have no idea what the answers were. But I'm willing to bet that hallowed was not one of them. It was not. In fact, no one ventured to even offer a guess. It was silence from all three contestants. Not even a stab. Well, not they even don't. a stab. It was just beep beep. Time's up. And then the, of course, the host said, hollowed. <laughs> what is hollowed? Yeah. Well, they don't want to come across as one of those fundies. Yeah. Well, you know, my background in terms of game shows, um, you know, the book that I'm writing on the lessons God taught us in our cancer experience and, and so on, I talk a little bit about this experience I had being on a game show and uh, how, you know, kind of the pressure's on. 
I mean, you know, you watch at home, you're sitting on, you know, your Barca lounger with your beverage of choice and watching these people. And well, of course, everybody knows that. But when you're on this game show, first of all, um, you've got to go through the selection process. If you, you know, you take a, a quiz, if you do well enough on the quiz, then one of the producers of the program meets with you. Uh, you play a simulated game to see how you respond to all of that. And if you go through all of these hoops, then you have a possibility of getting on the show. Not a guarantee, right? So people that you know make the trip on down and pay the expenses to be able to be there to go through this, a lot of pressure on them to start with. Then you go out there and you've got an audience that's watching you. You're kind of starstruck a bit by the host, you know, maybe Alex Trebek when he used to do it, uh, you know, and, and you know, it can be a little overwhelming. My game show experience was uh, when I was in seminary, uh, it was definitely the top ramen days in my life. Uh, you know, I used to commute uh, to the job that I had as a youth pastor by riding an old rickety rusty 10 speed. That was my form of transportation. Wow. Uh, and uh, working three different jobs to make ends meet. Well, this buddy of mine, who was the junior high pastor of this church I was serving, I was the high school pastor, brings in the LA Times and says, hey, uh, look at this. In the want ads, they're bringing back uh, the $25,000 pyramid mm. game. He goes, you're such a ham, you should go down and try out for that. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, why not? I mean, what's the worst that could happen? So I went down, jumped through all the hoops. Uh, I was selected along with another woman to be the contestants on the first show of the revived form of the $25,000 pyramid. Now, Dick Clark, the famous you know, entrepreneur and talk show host and record guy and you know, American bandstand, mm. he was the traditional host of the $25,000 pyramid. So there you are. And if you don't remember the program, you'd be paired up with a celebrity and uh, you know you would go through the idea of sharing categories and you had to guess uh, what the the overriding thing of the category was and if you won enough points uh, during the the contest you got to go to the big money board now when you go to the big money board right you have 60 seconds to get six of these categories and the way it would work would be if I were to say to you, say for instance, uh, a microphone, headphones, cameras, uh, Bibles, you might guess the category as things you'd see on a reason for hope. You know, if we were just doing that, that, that here, that, that's kind of how it worked. So here I am, I, you know, if you, I've got all six, I would win $25,000, which back in the early 80s was a huge amount of money. And boy, would that have changed my life. So uh, what they tell you is you're going to be too nervous. Uh, celebrities tend to be verbal. So let the celebrity give the clues and uh, they'll be a lot more relaxed. And, and that's probably the best way to go. You know, I was thinking, well, I'm a kind of verbal guy, but uh, all right, they know better. So I allowed this celebrity, an actor by the name of Robert Mandan, to give the clues. So we ripped through the first three uh, of the categories, just bang, bang, bang. I mean, we had 45 seconds to do the final three for the big wow. money. And I'm just thinking, wow, this is great. And then the celebrity looks at me and he looks up at the category and he looks at me again and he gets this 
panicked look on his face. And he says to me, Van Gogh. And I go, artists, painters. He goes, Van Gogh. And I said, abstract artists, Dutch people, Van Gogh. And I said, crazy people, people with one ear, Van Gogh. And like saying it louder was going to help me with all of this. Well, the guy blew 30 seconds on Van Gogh. And we didn't have time to, to get another one of them. Uh, the woman I can, competed against won more money, so she got to come back. I ended up with um, a, uh, the parting gifts of rice aroni, the San Francisco treat, and some Arawax. And, you know, again, $400 for my trouble. Uh, you know what the category was? Van Gogh? Men with beards. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Santa Claus, Abe Lincoln, the Smith Brothers, ZZ Top, for he, goodness he sake. came up with Van Gogh? Van Gogh, and that's the only thing he came up with. He just froze. So we need wow. to comment on the illiteracy and incompetence of celebrities. Yeah. No, you see so, so the, so the thing that I about. would say is when you're in that set of circumstances, even if you're like a celebrity, sometimes you can just <clears throat> blank out. So that is the nicest thing you can say about this. But the thing that is really challenging is uh, the uh, Barna organization did a survey where they asked uh, professing evangelical born-again Christians to name the four Gospels. Only 35% were able to do so. That's professing Bible-believing evangelical Christians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, not men with beards if you're playing along at home. And the other members of the Beatles. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, you know, again, I just throw it out to you guys. What does this say about the state of affairs in our society today, inside the church and outside the church? When it comes to someone's unwillingness to invest themselves intellectually in any topic, obviously, especially in the day and age we're in now where we're so inundated with information, you don't just pursue a topic. You have to pick and choose what kind of topic you're going to be flooded with at any particular time, and what sticks tends to be what sticks. You have to be very selective in the kind of information you get, noting how we benefit you all from this program and being selective with our input, but as well in your own life. Obviously, those founts of useless information can come and go based off of just being a victim of circumstance, uh, having a particular mood for a series of months where you just pursue this topic down to the bone and it tends to come in handy every now and again but then of course the classic line from the simpsons when they still had writing of every time i learn something new it jumps some old stuff out of my brain we can blame incompetence on our own negligence it can be the overwhelming environments we find ourselves in and just not having the time to take on maybe not even essentials of Christianity, but being caught off guard by trivia and trapped in what we call paralysis by analysis. Again, to be nice. Oftentimes people on the street aren't thinking about, unless you're me, uh, the sort of things that would be asked in those kinds of polls. And even if there's a moment's hesitation, you'd rather just pass than embarrass yourself and give an incorrect answer. That's a possibility. There's a little bit of pride there, but in a lesser sense. But when we're talking to people who are willfully ignorant of the Bible, 
obviously we run into them in and outside of the church and it comes from a personal unwillingness a personal vendetta maybe even a personal grudge against the very topic and because of the fact that this is associated with people they want to avoid everything that that involves itself with and this gets into the motivations people often have for unbelief in any topic when people are purposefully hostile or just want nothing to do with a particular topic not uh, hatred, but just indifference, having no desire to involve themselves in any of it. It's oftentimes either social, moral, or, in oftentimes is not the case, intellectual. People can have those who they look up to in their life as intellectual paragons and say, he's not interested in that, I don't think I want to be interested in that because I want to be more like them. There's people who have just this social distaste for those sort of things because of the people they look up to. The second can be emotional. There are people who've been done wrong by people in every single category. Uh, can't tell you the sad excuses that people give for anti-Semitism, for instance, because of a specific Jewish individual that had done them personally wrong in life. People can associate the same with Christians. People can associate the same with atheists. People can associate it with anything and form an irrational hostility towards a topic because of one bad emotional experience, or maybe a series of them. It could be devastating. It can be petty. But our our emotions are our emotions, and we don't oftentimes give it as much credit given the impact they can have or influence they can have on our decisions, on our behavior, on what we not just know but want to know. And then, of course, there's the intellectual and seeing there's no benefit whatsoever in pursuing that kind of field. Now, again, uh, given my line of work, it could come in handy one day, but I haven't taken the time to study the effects and ins and outs of electricity, of you know chemistry, of those sort of deals. I, I've made it through the uh, general requirements for my college education without taking a single class of calculus, and I, I don't regret that. I'm, I'm grateful to Newton for figuring that out, but I, uh, I'll leave that to his faculties. It's just not an area of interest to me because I don't see the need for it. Now, those who do study it may find some reasons for me, but that's not going to impact my life unless I'm the one seeking it out. So when it comes to a culture that essentially hands to you on a silver platter reasons, unfounded though they may be, to dismiss certain topics. You don't want to know what this political perspective is. You don't want to know what this social group has as far as their motivations are concerned. You don't want to know what the actual teachings of this religion uh, and reflected by their adherents are ultimately going to have in common with one another. And in this case, you don't want to know the Bible. It's just a collection of fairy tales and fables, and there's no bearing on your life. Well, all well and good, but the reality still stands. When it comes to the merits or demerits of why someone would even want to know about the Bible, it's because, as I mentioned kind of in passing, it formed the foundation of modern education. The idea of knowledge of truth being something accessible you can say it goes back even to Charlemagne and noting that that was to be uh, made accessible throughout the commonplace. You could also note the Roman Catholic Church in censoring information like every government has ever in order to preserve their power. But here's the point of emphasis. The idea of 
truth being accessible to every single person, that care and regard for the widow and the orphan as much as the noble and the statesman, being on equal playing ground in the eyes of God, comes from somewhere. And as far as the historical impact, as far as the historical accuracy, as far as the historical relevance of what we call the Jewish and Christian scriptures, it can't be understated enough. We're talking about a collection of documents spanning over 1,500 years of human history. And even if I weren't to, you know, give you any other information beyond that, there are reasons why people ought to read for instance, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Right. There are reasons why people ought to know about the life of Alexander and Plutarch's records of that. There are reasons why people ought to know about the Caesars, about World Wars I and II, about the Ottoman Empire, probably more so than most people would give it credit for today. And, of course, the famous quote by George Santayana that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We have a lot of lessons that we can learn from history, but if we're trained... What, what what's the Latin word I'm looking for? I'll stick to English before the fact. Yeah. To actually dismiss or even, dare I say, to unthinkingly accept this information, both aren't actually getting the facts. You can end up in error on either side of the issue, and that is oftentimes the cause for illiteracy in any topic. So as far as what depends on you, first understand that a willingness to learn starts with the first four letters, will. You have to make a conscious decision that this is relevant, that this is important. And truth and emotions can both play a role in that. As far as the uh, nobility of the Jeopardy question uh, algorithm or whoever was <laughs> setting up the system, <coughs> to include that, it was simply acknowledging a simple fact. This is a very significant piece of Jewish history and goes all the way into the time of the Roman period, which we would all benefit from learning. If you aren't a Christian, you can at least acknowledge that. I had college professors who acknowledged, and Peter Martin can also attest to this, that there were people who acknowledged it, albeit atheists, that said it's a beautiful collection of Hebrew poetry. And as a Christian, that breaks my heart because you're so close to yeah. something more. Yeah. But to dismiss it entirely is something of the will, and that is something that you can be trained by if you're willing to be led like a sheep. We don't want to encourage that in this sense. So first note, to be told something is not relevant for you to learn. That should be challenged. And second, to assume, well, I go to church, I'm American, <laughs> right? All of these excuses and saying that, well, of course, that's all true. I'll just agree with it because of association. That also doesn't cause you to learn anything. Be willing to ask yourself questions that are significant, even if you don't think that they are. And oftentimes that's going to come through something, and this is the final point I'd like to make on this topic, that we've lost in our culture, and that is the influence and social interaction with other people. I don't mean sound bites or video clips or comment sections. I mean looking into another person's eyes and realizing they aren't your own, of being able to observe someone's life experience and acknowledge they've gotten farther in some areas as a result of their passions, and I can learn from that. These are all things that are somewhat downplayed in Western culture, and that is something that we can only change if we're conscious 
this and we're intentional about it. As far as the scripture relevance is concerned, again, the information hasn't changed. If you want it, it's available to you, and that's always such been the case. But even during the time of Israel, we see during the days of Elijah, most people were willing to just go along to get along when Jezebel's reign of Baal worship were the norm. And the prophets of God were obviously as faithful as they could be, but it was a dangerous time for them. Why? Not just because of biblical illiteracy, but biblical complacency, biblical hostility. And that allowed some very ugly things to take its place. My saying that that's all going to result in the United States because of a, a failed Jeopardy question? Well, yes, but not for that reason. So make sure that you keep this in mind. It's a joke, by the way. When we are illiterate in any topic, it has to be something that we challenge ourselves on regularly because it's as natural <coughs> as gravity. We will forget things that we don't care about, and the things that we ought to care about oftentimes aren't going to be, or aren't going to stay that way, unless we surround ourselves with people who are living examples of it, which we encourage you all daily to be in regards to Scripture. Is it a failure of the Church? No, but an opportunity for sure. Is it an uh, agenda? by the United States government? No, I think it's just human nature playing out its natural rebellious roles. But when it comes to embarrassing moments, it's always equally as valuable to err on the side of grace and say, cameras are rolling. You ever been in a public speaking position? There are times where you can just go blank, and that is mm -hmm. also an issue of the will. Just make sure those things are trained. Otherwise, like exercise, they atrophy. But also like exercise, you get back to the gym, you'd be surprised how quickly you recover old muscles that you've trained. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, just a reminder from the book of Hosea, chapter 4 and verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Mm. Uh, you got to know what you believe and why you believe it. Uh, you got to know those basic facts. Why? Because if you don't take the time to know this, someone else will make up your mind for you on crucial mm. spiritual issues. You got to ask yourself the question, do you want to run that risk? Do you, do you really want to trust somebody else, maybe someone standing behind a pulpit, someone you see on TV? Do you want to run that risk? Uh, especially when the Bible says there's true prophets and false prophets. Hmm. There are individuals that are like sheep and uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to be able to really put on a good dog and pony show and deceive many. Uh, you know, the, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we are told that the Antichrist is going to do land office business in the last days because people did not receive the love of the truth mm. in order to be saved. Uh, you know, and, I'm not, and we're not suggesting, you know, sitting down and, you know, uh, doing some kind of odious, you know, boring, repetitive, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, academic exercise. You know, we understand what the Bible is. It's, it's God's word to man. It's not man's word about God. I mean, what we find in this Bible are the answers to the biggest questions of mm. life. Uh, we, we find that the more we know the Bible, the more we find ourselves being able to make solid uh, decisions based upon the fact that God has shown us that his word's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Man, if, if God has interrupted space and time and has spoken to us in his word, especially about a relationship with him through his son, man, we should run, not walk to our nearest Bible. Mm. And, uh, you know, when the, you start to see, you know, I just had this experience, wonderful experience. Yesterday I was praying so much about uh, the message for this weekend uh, coming up and, and just even driving home. And the Lord laid this scripture on my heart and it just began to expand and explode. And here I am driving up Oracle Road and having this spiritual experience 
as God just brings other passages back to my mind and my heart. And it was just such a joyful thing because communing with God at that moment wasn't just about me expressing my heart to God. And oftentimes that's kind of how we pigeonhole it. You know, I said my prayers there, therefore I've communed with God. But at that moment, when God speaks to you through his word, when he brings scripture back to your remembrance, when he starts to allow scripture to interpret scripture, and you have that, that, that revelation that God gives to you based upon his word through the work of his spirit, suddenly you discover it's a two-way conversation. Mm. God's speaking to us, not because I've heard some you know, disconnected ethereal voice, but because his word is truth. And the more he opens up his truth to you and allows, you know, say one passage of truth to open up other passages of his truth to you, and then you begin to see how it applies to your life, there's nothing more exciting than that. Hmm. And man, uh, you know, I remember right after I became a, a Christian back in 1973, I started reading the Bible and understanding it for the first time. It was just so amazing how good the Bible had gotten all of a sudden, you know, after I became born again. And I just remember uh, one night reading through the entire Gospel of John because it was so good I couldn't put it down. I just wanted to see how it all turned out, hmm. you know. And I was cruising all the way into Acts and finally went to bed. Uh, and and you know this thought dawned on me. Um, well, is there ever going to be a time when the Bible seems to me like yesterday's newspaper? Yeah, ah, yeah, heard it. Yeah, yeah, seen that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. You don't need to tell me. I know. Uh, you know, and I wondered about that. Well, that was back in 1973. Um, a lot of water in the bridge since then, 50 years. And I'm here to tell you, you know, I have a master's degree in biblical languages and theology. I just feel like I've scratched the surface mm. of the amazing truth that we have in the Word of God. Every time I open it up with, a, with an open heart and, and wanting to hear from God and wanting to understand His Word more deeply and wanting to apply it more specifically to my life, Man, being in the, the Word is not a got to, it's a get to. Mm. It's just the ultimate privilege. And I just, I, I want to tell you, it's just gotten better as time goes on. People say, oh, you were so excited uh, about that message that you shared. Uh, well, if I ever get to the point where I'm not excited about sharing God's truth with people, man, it's time to quit. Mm. Mm. So... Wow. <laughs> yeah. But so far, so good. <laughs> well, may God instill in all of us that uh, that same continuous passion that we would finish the race as strong as we started it yeah like uh, levi lesko often said uh the bible's not boring you're boring <laughs> <laughs> so. and it does indicate a little bit of a sort of I, I wouldn't say like sean said it's not a failure but um just the fact that the church has been influenced by the culture a little bit more than the church has influenced the culture so you will see <clears throat> that just is a good reminder that uh when we get very comfortable and complacent with our material wealth and whatever it might be, uh, it, it made me think of that John 17, chapter 17 passage when Jesus is praying for his disciples and he says, you know, they're not of the world like I'm not of the world. I don't want you to take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. So we are in the world, but not of it. Right. And we are to be here as light and salt. And if we lose our saltiness then what good are we <laughs> yeah and in that very same prayer you know what did jesus say sanctify them by the truth mm. your <clears throat> word mm. is truth mm. you know if you're out there and you think jesus is a good teacher well what did jesus teach about the word of god about the bible he said it was god's word it was 
truth mm. with a capital T that can be tested. And I would just, I would just in, encourage it. Start digging into it. Start mm. reading in the Gospel of John, the life of Jesus. I, I had a chance to minister uh, and encourage a guy who was really struggling with depression uh, earlier this week, really in a, in, a, in a really tough, tough place. And, you know, the thing that I encouraged him to do was I said, you know, you just need to immerse yourself in a time like this in God's Word. And this is coming from a time in my life where I was diagnosed with clinical depression. The thing that was my lifeline then was just soaking myself in God's Word as much as I didn't want to at times, as much as I just felt tired, depressed, discouraged. I decided I was going to do it. And, you know, the thing I said to him is, man, go to thewordfortoday.com download one of Pastor Chuck Smith's verse-by-verse teachings through the Gospel of John, mm. where you just meet Jesus in such an up-close and personal way. And I said, just fill your heart with this. You know, take it around with you while you're driving from place to place in your job. When you get home and you're getting ready to go to bed, you know, just listen to it. Listen to the word about Jesus and see if it makes a difference. Mm. It really does. It really does. <clears throat> I really appreciated that uh, one of the movies about the life of Jesus that was made called the Gospel of John that uh, was a verse-by-verse movie of it. It wasn't, there wasn't anything added, no lines added. It was just the gospel word for word, and it was well acted. I think one of the the, the actor that played Jesus was from Lost, I think it was, <laughs> the, the main, one of the main guys from Lost. But it was, uh, it's a great little film, so if you want to immerse yourself in a, in a different format into the gospel, you read it, you listen to it, you listen to someone teach through it, and maybe watch the movie, too, that uh, goes through, and it goes through every single verse verbatim without changing anything or adding anything or taking it away, and it's well-acted and well-produced. And uh, so that's another a- aspect that you can, as you said, immerse yourself in God's Word. Great, great great uh, wisdom and encouragement thank you and, and, a, and a quick answer to uh, Annie's question because this is what started all of this what does it mean to hallow God's name honor her to consider it set apart yeah to yeah. treat it as it deserves to be treated as something that is uh, absolutely higher uh, above anything else yeah. But the reason the she said, what is hallowed, that was to answer yeah. the Jeffrey question. Because <laughs> yeah. you have to answer in the form of a question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I missed that, too, and I answered it in the text. And, uh, well, now I'm a little bit Now you got the buzzer. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, Annie, I'm sorry. I did, too. <laughs> I, I, for, I forgot to phrase it in the form of a question. Uh, what is someone who needs to read through the timeline a little bit longer? Here's your, here's your box of rice <laughs> okay, Thank you. <laughs> who is Jeff? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, continuing on from uh, a question we missed yesterday. Um, Bear, is it Bear Rob? <laughs> uh, was the angel of the Lord in Genesis always Jesus? Or was it the Father and the Holy Spirit at different times? Very good question, and when it comes to making distinctions between the persons of the Trinity, obviously when we note them all as God, but we note there's a distinction between the persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Father and the Son are not the Spirit. We need to look for those exclusive traits that would apply to the persons of the Trinity, not the nature of God. So if a distinction's made between God and God, you could note at least 
two members of the Trinity are active there, but you can also make a distinction in noting what are the sort of things the Son does? What are the sort of things the Father does? What are the th sort of things the Spirit does? And obviously, if you can do that, then you could make a point and note. Since you specified Genesis and you didn't go into, say, for instance, Exodus at the burning bush or Joshua with his uh, commander of the army of the Lord appearance, we'll stick to Genesis. There are a lot of appearances of the, literally, uh, the logos as it's referred to in Greek, the Malach uh, Yahweh. But as far as the big moments are concerned, obviously, I'll just pick three and I'll note that they all have one person in mind to spoil the ending to this. Uh, Genesis 18, obviously there is a man that appears with two men in a company with him, and one is directly and verbally identified as the capital L-O-R-D, Lord, as we're told when they're eating a meal, so taking on a physical form. Verse 13 says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Yeah. Now, this is later clarified as far as which person of the Trinity is present here in the Gospel of John, where Jesus, basically throwing down the gauntlet, notes that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now, was that the day that the Messiah was physically born? Obviously not. That postdated him about 2,000 years. But what day was he referring to? This statement's fulfillment. When he told him, you will have a son that Sarah will conceive regardless of her old age and that I would return to you. And they rightly understood that and saying, have you seen Abraham? And he notes, before Abraham was, I am note that as the passage in fulfillment. We're given in other biblical texts that this was God the Son manifesting in a physical human form. Another example in Genesis of the angel of the Lord appearing is the uh, interesting incident at Bethel, and this isn't referenced later per se, but we could note within the text the sort of things that are broad across the board as only applying to God. We can't narrow it down, but we can note some things about the Son that are present here. This is in Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob is, well, for all intents and purposes, uh, running for his life from his big brother Esau. And it notes in verse 13, Behold, the Lord stood above it, that is the ladder he saw in that vision, and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, and also the God of Jacob, but he's talking to Jacob, so you note the point there. It says, The land in which you lie, I will give you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad the west, the east, the north, and the south. You and your seed and all the families in the earth will be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this uh, land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Now, what's interesting about this, and he goes on to say in the next verse, surely the Lord is in this place. That's why he called it Bethel, or house of God. We can clarify that the nature of the being that was speaking to him was the same nature of the being that spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, because he literally repeats the words that he promised to Abraham, and now two generations later is repeating it. Now, do we know specifically which member of the Godhead this is? Not necessarily from extra-biblical information, but in the third example I'd like to give to you, Jacob reflects on this moment later in life, and he references him exclusively as the angel of the Lord. This is Genesis chapter, let's do 48. 
8 and verse 15, where he's blessing Joseph. Now, note his language here. God, before whom my fathers Abraham, Isaac, and walked, so they lived in light of and in obedience to him, the God who has fed me all, the, all of my life long to this day, verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now, that's interesting. Because as far as an act of redemption is concerned, we can go to other areas, not just in the New Testament, but the Torah, noting that the redemptive work is something that's exclusive to the Son. But what's also interesting about this, and what's keen to pay attention to in finding these proof texts for the Trinity, is noting this very interesting observation that the angel of the Lord is credited not just alongside but for the same things that God only does in someone's life. So when we reflect on this and note the redemptive work, which member of the Godhead does the redeeming? Well, you could note it was the Father's purpose to redeem us. We could read in Romans in the book of Hebrews, the Son's act was what redeemed us, and the Spirit's indwelling of us is what causes redemption. That's all well and good. But if we want to know which person of the Godhead that's being spoken of, there's a universal principle that you want to always keep in mind when noting when is the Son mentioned? And that's in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the famous passage, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does it go on to say? And he, we beheld his glory, the right. glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, later observations made also by John note, of all the members of the Godhead that anyone has ever been exposed to, no one has seen the Father at any time. So if Jacob saw a member of the Godhead, Father's out. The Spirit, according to John chapter 4, compositionally is also not visible. He has not taken a physical form unless you count the dove in um, Mark chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism. <clears throat> so not necessarily out, but you'd note to be specific. There are examples, for instance, where Job specifies, the Spirit of God gave me life, or the Spirit was grieved upon the condition of his people, as we see in Hosea and so forth. So those are things to keep in mind. But given the fact that Joseph and Jacob's blessings to one another, Jacob blessing Joseph in this case, mentions the angel of the Lord, it's pretty much carte blanche across the board, that if it's Yahweh Malachim, or angel of the Lord, it's Jesus, because mm. he's giving a visible and a material revelation right. of God's <clears throat> nature. And in and the Old Testament, we call that a Christophany, Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is that the same as a theophany, or is there a difference in the terms? Very slightly, but it's the same principle, God showed up. Yeah. Well, since Jesus is God, there same you go. Thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and if it's always a, a physical being, then it's Jesus. Yeah, and that's a rule to go by. Now, once again, if you're curious, like, well, could the Spirit be revealing himself here? Well, there's ways that God reveals himself consistently. But throughout the Old Testament, whenever you see angel of the Lord, unless the context is very explicit otherwise, assume that it's the Son being spoken of here. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. That was very thorough. Good job. I, I actually know that topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I like right. talking about things I know something about. Awesome. Our next question is uh, kind of an interest, a very interesting question. Nancy wanted to know, uh, what is the Christian view of egg and sperm donation? So in other words, um, when it comes to fertility treatments, are any practices uh, up for grabs? Or is, should there be, uh, is there any biblical principles that should give Christians pause when discerning whether or not a particular fertility approach should be uh, 
avoid it. Yeah, when people are usually concerned, it's like, well, if someone's sired from my seed to not be crass, but to be to the point, am I responsible in some way as the parent of that child or in donating these eggs? Uh, how do I know that they're going to be responsible with it or if they're going to use it for, you know, uh, abortifagents or something like that? When it comes to what Christians can know, ought to know, and should know when going into these clinics, what principles in scripture, since obviously didn't have in vitro <coughs> fertilization at yeah. the time of the writing of the Bible, what can we determine as far as not just obvious no-nos like Planned Parenthood, but just this principle? Yeah, I think the, uh, the foundational principle in all of this is answering the question, when does life begin? Uh, it begins at the moment of conception. Uh, Psalm 139 makes that very, very plain. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, the days which were ordained for me, when there's not yet one of them. Well, if we go back to the unformed substance, that is the moment when the egg cell and the sperm cell unite before the first division, if you will, that scientists call cell differentiation, that all that genetic information starts doing its amazing, miraculous, God-designed thing that from this one cell with the DNA information that has been united by the egg and the sperm cell, uh, suddenly you have uh, the differentiation between kidney tissue and eyebrows and, and uh, heart tissue and brain cells and so on. But all of that information is contained there. Everything that makes us us mm -hmm. was there at that particular moment. You know, and I found that going back to that particular principle is pretty instructive because we do have, obviously, technologies that aren't spoken of directly within the Bible, uh, mainly because uh, we just don't really uh, see the, the ability to do so scientifically. I would say that any process that we see in the Bible where surrogate parenthood was the issue um, never really worked out. Go back to uh, Hagar and uh, Abraham. You know, Sarah first thought it would be a great idea. Hey, God's made you this promise. You're going to have descendants like uh, the sands of the seashore, stars in the sky. It's not happening for 10 years after getting the promise. I must be the problem. So let's take things into our own hands. Let's bring in this handmaid of mine, Hagar, and she'll have the baby of promise for you. Well, she did have uh, a baby, uh, Ishmael. But it didn't take very long uh, after uh, Isaac was born for a huge conflict to get going. Uh, Sarah saw uh, Ishmael mocking uh, the child, making fun, teasing, and said, you got to get rid of this woman and that other child. And Abraham's like, ah, what do I do? And God says, uh, don't worry. I'm going to take care of the woman and the child. He's going to you know, become a uh, father of many nations as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, sent him away. You know, it was really interesting how the scripture describes Sarah mistreating Hagar. And the same word for mistreatment there is the same word that was used to describe the Egyptians mistreating the Israelites wow. in their captivity. In other words, it was not just, you know, well, uh, yeah, I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. It was uh, Sarah basically uh, using her prerogatives as a master over a slave, if you will, mm. even physically abusing Hagar. So, and never, you can see why, because Hagar is the living example of, I'm the one at fault in this infertility issue. Yeah. Even so, if the treatment wasn't exactly the same, so, but God yeah, the, at it that the, way. The, yeah. the, the, basically, when we take things into our own hands, mm. you know, nothing really good comes out of that. 
Now, obviously, there are couples who struggle with infertility, and uh, one of the, the big problems with infertility treatment, uh, you know, uh, say, uh, egg implantment, you know, artificial uh, insemination, uh, these sort of things, in vitro fertilization, uh, and then these eggs are planted, is you just don't have one egg being planted. You got a bunch of eggs being planted so that <clears throat> one tends to survive or there's multiple births or things That's along this line. That's how women end up with six tuplets. And yeah. Like that. And, and so, you know, the, the, the question comes up, okay, if you are in this set of circumstance where you cannot have a, a physical child yourself, should we use, just because we can use, these different areas of, of technical expertise to bring about a, uh, you know, a genetically you know, linked individual. Well, there's some questions you gotta raise. Okay, how many children are waiting for adoption out there you know, that, uh, that don't have a home mm. uh, and you're gonna turn your back on them simply because they're not blood related? You know, how important it is, is it to have a blood related child to you and why you know these are questions that a person has to really work through before they make the decision to go ahead and use one of these extraordinary uh you know opportunities to do so the other thing is this uh you know when uh you know say eggs are set aside and frozen quite a few that are actually inseminated uh end up being discarded uh, being thrown away and if our life begins at conception that's something we really don't want to be a part of it's almost like uh, the uh, argument that always comes up about Christians and birth control in general well you know I think anything you know God gave man the ability to exercise dominion that is control over the environment there's nothing wrong with making decisions about when uh, you're gonna bring a child into this world if the uh, methods used are uh, not uh, abortifacient. And, uh, you know, when we talk about the birth control pill, what the birth control pill does is it prevents a fertilized egg from implanting mm -hmm. in the uterus of the mom. In essence, a uh, tiny abortion takes place. I think an IUD does the same thing. The IUD does, does the same thing. It just prevents yeah. implantation, not yeah. fertilization. But there are other mm -hmm. uh, avenues that one can use, like the diaphragm or things like this, that can prevent the idea guy wearing a condom can prevent the idea of conception taking place at that particular point you know again there's some believers that just say you know well uh you know the rhythm method uh you know we're just going to trust god with all of that well you know you want to have six or seven kids then you know by all means it worked you know, for us you know feel right when we feel feel free uh but uh but you know we've got to take into account the priority of the value of life hmm. in all of this and we have to answer uh once and for all for us uh how we are going to answer that question when does life begin and maybe the most pointed way to answer that question is to ask the question when did your life begin it began at the moment of conception. You weren't an inanimate object. Uh, you weren't a thing. You were a being at that moment. Your genetic endowment determined that you were a being that was human. You were a human being. The only difference between the fertilized egg and you and me sitting here today is time and nurture. That's it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I like how one uh, uh, <clears throat> life advocate said, you're just age discriminating. It's just age discrimination. Yeah. When you, all the arguments used for the pro-choice movement, it really amounts to 
you're just discriminating against someone because of their age. Yeah. They might be conceived yesterday versus someone who was conceived 11, 12, 13 months ago. And you're just, you're just discriminating based on age. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> some have even uh, realized that that is in fact what they're arguing for. Peter Singer, the mm -hmm. uh, famous uh, skeptic and uh, secularist and, uh, and ethicist, if you want to call this ethics, said that he would be up for uh, terminating babies up to two years old if, say, the conditions of the parents changed or they decided they really didn't want to take care of a kid or something like that. I have to give Singer credit for uh, consistency, mm -hmm. but that's really kind of the point that you're making. Mm -hmm. So yeah. in summation, um, <clears throat> to the one who asked the question, understand the organization you're donating to, make sure it's not for medical experiments or long-term mm -hmm. storage. There are other options available, which makes even a okay option less than the best, which is what you should be going for. And adoption is obviously at the top of that list. There are concerns, of course, when it comes to the issues of surrogate parenthood, which we would strongly advise against, put it that way. No, no recreations mm -hmm. of uh, <clears throat> later parks and rec seasons, if you catch the point. And then of course, when it comes to just on principle, it's not that there's anything wrong with it, but make sure that just like they'll be accountable with what they did, just like if we vote for a candidate, for instance, what they do with that in your conscience as opposed to theirs are two different things. If they deceive you, you're not accountable for that. Mm -hmm. But make sure you do your diligence in participating uh, with those things. A side example, there's an Old Testament figure where uh, a husband has passed away in order to preserve the family line. The Leverite law. Yeah, yeah the, he law, was, the law of the brother-in-law. Yeah, Yeah, and, and then he he spilled his seed on the ground and God... Oh, no. That, yeah. That's different. Yeah. That's different. That was him being a direct yeah, obstacle. Yeah, I know <laughs> what he did was wrong. Yeah, I, I understand, and I understand why. So taking that example and putting it into the modern day, what if the husband is... hit? The problem is with him, and they decide to use sperm donation, not in vitro, but just sperm donation where where you're trying to, you're not jeopardizing a fertilized egg, you're just trying to actually fertilize an egg, but using not the father's seed, but... Well, my, <laughs> my question then is, why not just adopt? Yeah, yeah there are better yeah. options. Yeah, that, that's always my go-to, but I was curious if you had... Yeah, uh, yeah, I would, would say, I would say that, that I would say well, the, the, the priority would be to adopt. Yeah, okay. Good stuff, good stuff. And yeah. I, I, I have friends who have done in vitro, and the reason there are so many eggs is because it's so expensive, and they want to ensure success, and therefore they're, they're fertilizing multiple eggs, and most of them don't survive. So it, you are essentially discarding human lives, yeah. and that's why it's... Uh, yeah, and, and so you asked for the Christian point of view on that. It really does come back to when do you believe life begins. Mm, good stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you, Scott. Yeah. Our next question is um did you get to marks about the euphrates river because that's always an interesting one yeah we can yeah. go to that one yeah, yeah. Why yeah. Not? Very, very briefly um there's moments where the euphrates river isn't as full or even in patches is dried up but the language being used in revelation 16 is absolute but even then if we're to grant oh it's dried up and it's filled up because of its connection to the Caspian Sea or the Black Sea and so forth. Well, what, what do you do with all this? Well, understand the impact of that plague. It wasn't just that the Euphrates River dried up. Otherwise, we took a major step down in severity from the previous five plagues that have happened so far. The reason isn't just the Euphrates River has dried up, but it says in verse 12, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Then demonic spirits are permitted to go and deceive the nations to gather them together for the 
war to end all wars, but not in uh, the World War I sense, I mean the actual sense, historically. When we're talking about the impact of this plague, we're talking about mankind basically being given up on to destroy itself. That's the severity of the plague, not just a geological feature happening to dry up at a particular time. This point, eschatologically, if you take a futurist view, which we do, there is, of course, more reasons for this than just the lake being dry. It's because this river dried up that an army is able to meet the Antichrist forces, which we see more details about in Daniel 11 as to why. Yeah, and, and the only thing I would add to that is we have record in the scripture about the Euphrates River drying up at other times. Yeah. Uh, in the book of, uh, of Jeremiah, uh, there was a prophecy, a drought on her water, speaking of the Euphrates, they will dry up for it is a land of idols, idols that will go mad with terror. Well, this was referring to God's pronouncement of judgment upon the Babylon of that day. And uh, it's very interesting in the book of Daniel, what brought about the final judgment on Babylon? It was when a very clever uh, uh, Medo-Persian general by the name of Cyrus uh, figured out that by building a dam upstream from the Euphrates River, which ran under the walls of Babylon, when that uh, uh, amount of water uh, went down, you could walk underneath the brass gates. Isaiah also prophesies this sort of thing happening. So we've seen the waters of the river Euphrates dry up even in a prophetic fulfillment sense, but what you said is right on. When people say, oh, the waters of the Euphrates are drying up, well, that does happen periodically depending upon the climate cycle. But what is happening in Revelation is coinciding with this massive army coming out of the east that is going to be a part the Battle of Armageddon. If we don't see a massive army out of the east uh, there at the River Euphrates and it drying up to facilitate their invasion of the Middle East, we're not talking about a prophetic fulfillment. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we're about out of time, so we'll cut it there. Thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you so much, pastors, for your time. And uh, gosh, it's really just a, such a blessing. So we encourage you to uh, jump online, engage with us, think of those questions, things, think of things that you want to know about and ask and engage with us. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll be here again, same place, same time on Monday. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.